If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with Dick Russell, author of the monumental three-volume biography of renegade post-Jungian psychologist James Hillman. Dick is the author of many books, including his groundbreaking journalism on the JFK assassination and bestsellers co-authored with Jesse Ventura and Robert Kennedy Jr. Dick is a natural and generous storyteller, and in our conversation, he shares many wonderful stories about his friend and mentor, James Hillman. And in the last half hour of our talk, Dick shares the extraordinary story of taking his schizophrenic son, Franklin, to meet with famed West African teacher and healer Malado Masome, eventually traveling to Burkina Faso to work with an indigenous African shaman for a month-long healing ritual. This was a really wonderful conversation, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. If you'd like to support the podcast and gain access to early release of episodes and the full podcast archives, consider joining the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm here with Dick Russell. Dick, it's uh, it's really nice to meet you, and I'm really glad that you can make the time to speak with me today. Thanks, Brian. Good to be with you today. Well, we're here on the occasion of the release of Volume 2 of your biography of James Hillman. And as people who listen to the podcast know, I'm very interested in Hillman's ideas. He's probably been the most influential psychologist in my life. And uh, I'm really looking forward to digging into Volume 2. Uh, it gets into how his work developed. Um, and that's what I'm most interested in. Uh, now, a little bit of background for people listening. And uh, I think it's just an amazing story, too, how your meeting with Hillman um, occurred and how he was an influencer, mentor in your life and particularly in your relationship with your son. But if we could go back to when you first met Hillman, um, how did that come about? Okay, well, it was the it was the late 1990s, and um, I live with a large group of friends. We've been sharing a life together for many years, and and uh, we had discovered Hillman's work when I was much younger. When I was when I, I I quit my dream job when I was 21 years old, I'd, I'd gone to work for Sports Illustrated magazine in New York, and it was the late 1960s and uh, early 1970s. My interests had moved beyond sports, and uh, I realized there was some just a lot of things going on in the culture. There was the Vietnam War and civil rights movement, and my friends were hippies. And anyway, I took off with a backpack and a portable typewriter and roamed around the world for a year and a half. And while I was doing that early on in Liverpool, actually, I discovered Carl Jung. And uh, he 
had a I started writing down all these quotes from Jung and, and as I as I was just hanging out in, in Liverpool and and uh, realizing something about my life through him that I was something about my destiny and I felt I felt I had some kind of destiny right that that I was supposed to explore and illuminate uh, uh, darker forces or shadows or you know uh, the unconscious parts of society and and that that actually proved true of, of much of my writing career after that but. Um, then we were we were reading Hillman, and it was we were started with a blue fire, uh, which was excerpts from a lot of his his early writings uh, that Tom Moore put together, and uh, and was very impressed by him. And we used to kind of have study groups talking about him and stuff. And and then one day um, there was a young fellow who'd grown up grown up in our family uh, whose father had left and was an organic farmer in Connecticut. We were talking about Hillman, and he said. Uh, Oh, my dad knows James Hillman. He sells him his organic vegetables in the marketplace in Connecticut. I said, wow. I said, so I called my old friend, Wayne uh, Hanson, and, and I said, Wayne, do you think you, uh, you, I might be able to meet James Hillman sometime? And and uh, he said, well, I don't know. He's very private, you know, but I, I sent him a copy of my second book, which was called Black Genius and the American Experience. And uh, he liked the, the format of it a lot. It was It had chapters about ancestors and Comparative chapters like Frederick Douglass with James Baldwin, 100 years apart, those kinds of things, and the importance of family and mentors in the African-American tradition. And and I, I have a son who's biracial, and so I was kind of writing it with the idea that someday he would read it and and, and gain from learning about these people. So anyway, um, Hillman liked it, and, and we ended up having lunch together. Uh, he, his, his, not his wife yet, but my wife and I and Wayne and and we just hit it off. Um, we we found we had many common interests. We both traveled widely in Africa when we were young. Uh, we both loved boxing, actually, and I'd known Muhammad Ali, and and so we had a lot to talk about, and nothing about psychology. I mean, I never studied psychology in school. I was an investigative journalist, basically. So that was the very first time I met him, and I'd be happy to outline further our relationship, because I certainly did not start out to be his biographer. Hmm. Were you at Sports Illustrated when um, I think uh, George Lois did that cover of Muhammad Ali as uh, Saint Sebastian? You know the one I'm talking about—that black and white photo where he's got the yeah. arrows in him. Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. Yes, uh, I was there. Well, early I, in the 1970 was well, I left in 1970 in the spring. So, um, and I came to know Ali later quite well. Actually, hmm. uh, it was a wonderful part of my life getting to go to his training camp and hang out with him and go to the second Frazier fight and later do a story on him for TV guide magazine when I worked for them. Uh, so yeah, I, it was, a he was quite a, I've been blessed with meeting some amazing people in my life. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, cause I, I've heard you talk about different stories uh, of your life and uh, it's really fascinating, but you know, one of Hillman's kind of central ideas that he put forward in the soul's code was the the acorn theory, which is an old Neoplatonic idea that we come into this life with our destiny already in place, and there's a diamond that accompanies us that tries to steer us along the right path. Now, um, you talked about being like 2021 20, and feeling like you were destined to something else. How did your acorn start to reveal itself to you? Well, you know, it was there was a thread that I I have followed, I guess, most of my life, which is 
uh, I don't know quite how to describe it. It, it. It's like at that point in my life, I knew that my life had moved beyond just sports. And 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 I called this friend of mine and who they're going to college with and said, you know, I, I, I it's a it's great being here. And they're kind of, you know, weaning me to run this magazine someday. I was just a kid, really, and writing Baseball's Week. And and uh, I said, but I know that it'll kill my soul. I've got to do something else. I've got to get out. I, I, I left the country. I, I traveled for a year and a half um, with a backpack and a portable typewriter. Back in the days, you could hitchhike everywhere in Europe and Africa and the Middle East. And I had some really profound, uh, life-changing experiences. And uh, I don't know. I've always felt I had things that happened to me over there that foretold what I was going to do later. I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, and I came to believe in that, you know, that there was a there was a soul's code, even though I didn't know that word really yet. And, or Hillman hadn't even written his book until the mid 1990s. But um, I, I felt it somehow that I was I would almost like there was a guiding spirit or would call it a daimon or a higher self or something that was that was there guiding me, thankfully, toward not just a conventional life, you know, but uh uh, leading me to live with a group of friends I've been living with for years, um, you know, just to opening new doors that kind of, I don't know, going back, I, I'll just tell one brief story that I've thought about over the years was that I had, when I was a little boy, I had a recurring dream that there was a, I was, I was approaching a doorway and beyond the doorway it was very dark and scary and mysterious. And I, and I, I was really afraid to walk through it. But I knew that on the other side of that doorway were mysteries that I somehow had to explore. And in my later life, uh, I, I did a, a book, spent two and a half years uh, researching the Kennedy assassination, for example. And, and uh, you know, was the first investigative journalist to really do that and, and interviewed some very dangerous people, I guess you'd say. Uh, you know, I had the CIA following me, I was told and stuff like that. So, um you know, I don't know. It, it does, I don't know if that answers your question, but hmm. but my life has always taken me. I've been blessed to write about things that I I really cared about and uh, to explore mysteries like eventually the environment. I got into writing about the environment for many many years, and still do. And wrote a book uh, called Eye of the Whale about these friendly gray whales in Mexico that come up to you in a small boat mysteriously. Started in the 1970s, nobody knows why. And uh, in this little lagoon where the gray whales came to have their young, they would the mothers would introduce the, the newborns to to you, and you'd be petting them in the wild before they made their migration back. At the time when their habitat was threatened by this uh, uh, incursion by Mitsubishi and the Mexican government to build this big salt works there, so I ended up writing a book about all this and following their migration all the way to Russia. Uh, back in the early late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, so that too was this mystery that that somehow um, I was compelled to delve into and and explore. Hmm. Was there something you could point to in your upbringing that um, gave you the courage to start following these threads so early? Because like so many of us, you know, I didn't kind of. Uh, snap out of it until I was in my mid thirties and I left advertising and cause I felt like it was uh, destroying my soul and started on a new trajectory. Uh, 
you know, but that took quite some time and a lot of uh, suffering to get to that point. Um, now, for you to be following these urgings at 2021, leaving this dream job and heading out into the great unknown, uh, it must have taken a lot of like faith and courage, no? Yes. I mean, I never considered myself, you know, I wasn't doing this because I was some courageous risk taker, you know, but I was, I will say I was very successful, very young at what I did and sort of reached the top, I guess, at a time when all these other things were happening and I was being influenced by them and realizing that somehow this was not what I, I was going to do with my life. And and so was that a higher power guiding me? Or, you know, I, I believe it probably was in a sense. Um, but I, I uh, so I just threw it all away. I mean, my parents thought I was crazy. My younger brother, who's a very successful businessman, couldn't believe I did it. Um, and I was a Midwestern kid. I was raised, you know, upper middle class, uh, suburban Kansas City, born in Minneapolis. I wasn't, you know, a West Coaster or an East Coast kid and went to University of Kansas. And uh, but something happened to me and uh, that uh, that pushed me onto that literal road. And and I guess I never looked back, you know. Okay, so meeting Hillman, uh, what were your first impressions of him? Well, first of all, that he was just, although he was obviously brilliant, and I knew that from reading him, he was a regular, you know, he was very down to earth in certain ways. Um, you know, he just loved to talk about everyday things and, and, but, but take things to a deeper level, you know, and, uh, so uh, he was, uh, a lot of fun to be with. He was funny. Um, you know, he years later, he signed, uh, I remember really soon after, he signed a, a copy of, of one of his books to my wife. And and, uh, and this was actually after we got to know him and he started visiting our homes and and uh, we got to know each other better. And he said, he wrote, uh, we were brought together, not by fate, but by its instrument, Wayne's Potato meaning my organic farmer friend, right? <laughs> so I mean, that's the kind of thing he would do. Um, you know, I mean, he got a kick out of the, the fact that I wrote these tomes. I mean, I've done 15 books and a lot of them are big fat books that, that uh, uh, some, one, my first one, my friends, it was called The Man Who Knew Too Much and my friends called it The Book That Grew Too Much. It was about the Kennedy assassination. <laughs> and uh so I remember one point, James's wife, Margot, says, well, do you write in the morning? And James just looked at me and said, no, he writes all day. <laughs> to finish these songs, right? So, I mean, he was he was just fun to be around. And uh, but also, you know, I mean, when he, I remember when he came to visit our we have a place in Los Angeles where I live. And uh, uh, I remember walking in to see him and he said, he said, what do you? What do you do on, on a sinking ship? Do you pray? He was talking about the Titanic, you know, comparing our times. This was the early 2000s, you know, to the to the time when the Titanic went down and, and the Bush administration was in power then. And But, you know, we were already seeing uh, the beginnings, certainly, if not more than the beginnings of what, you know, this kind of crazy uh, world we're living in today with democracy and great crisis and, and the potential of, you know, authoritarianism and AI and all these threats that we're, we're looking at as a society. But he was tuning into those things, you know, long before. And, and we would have conversations about that. And, and uh, so it was, you know, it, it was a great privilege to be around him. 
And the way the biography happened again was very, I don't know, I mean, what to call it. Uh, I certainly did not intend to, I never felt qualified. I wasn't, like I say, a psychologist. Um, but in, in early in uh, 2004, so we'd known each other then for off and on for about five years. And uh, his older sister came to visit uh, their their home in Connecticut. They, they live on this lived on this kind of, this farm really, in a lovely old farmhouse, big place in uh, Thompson, Connecticut. And uh, she was she was there and was telling these great stories about the growing up years in Atlantic City, where uh, James's uh, parents. Uh, his father owned a hotel on the Atlantic City boardwalk, and so he grew up in the 1920s in this fabulously extroverted world of, you know, the high-flying whatever. <laughs> and uh, um, and so his sister was talking about this, and I said afterwards, uh, "Wow, she's such a great storyteller. You should uh, you should get some of her stories on tape while while she's still with us." And so this gave him the idea to bring all of the siblings together. He had, he had three three siblings and all of his kids, as many as he had four kids, as many as who could come uh, that summer to to the place, their home, and and film it and talk about you know the early years, the ancestors, all kinds of interesting stuff. So a member of my family, a young lady, film came to do the filming, and my wife Alice was there and his wife Margot, and they got talking afterwards. Was James ever going to do a biography? And um, I guess it came down to, well, if he really didn't want to do that, particularly, he never had. He didn't even want his picture on his books. Very, He wanted everything to be about the work, really. And uh, uh, he eschewed personalistic biography, did not like it. Mm -hmm. um, but they kind of said, well, maybe he was, he was in it. He's 21 years older than I, so he was in his late, he was in his 70s, and I was 57 at the time, that maybe I should do it. And and so I did. And it took he, from the very beginning, he, he I remember him looking at me and saying, this will take years, you know, don't give up your day job. You know, keep writing other on other subjects, which I did. I was finishing a book about saving a fish, about the Atlantic striped bass. I ended up doing um, in the course of writing this biography series, um, five books with, of all people, Jesse Ventura, the wrestler turned governor of Minnesota, who I happened to run into by accident in Mexico. And and we ended up doing all this work together and and writing a lot about the environment. So, um, you know, it, it did take a long time. I originally just intended to write one volume. And um, he would work closely with me in the sense that he never censored what I was writing or told, but he would always, I would show him the chapters as I wrote them. And then he would expand on the themes, which was just wonderful, you know, to actually have him because thing, new things would come to mind about mm -hmm. the places he'd lived and where he'd grown up and the importance of ancestors. And this was mostly around volume one. But um, anyway, it was a tremendous privilege to actually be able to sit with him and and uh, do many interviews. Um, and, and not always easy at all, because I had to learn a whole new field basically in the course of this hmm. yeah i was going to ask you about that because he he famously wasn't interested in personal biography like in terms of uh the therapeutic process uh he even said at one point i remember uh like i don't care about origin stories or something like that <laughs> you know like yeah and so to then um 
see this like massive biography of him come out, I was wondering like what his initial reactions to it were and if there was resistance to him uh, speaking about himself in such depth. And, you know, because a lot of the people that he uh, he came up with, too, are still around. And so is there any concern about um, revealing too much? Because he's he's been a controversial figure in in the Jungian and, and wider psychological world, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, he never really held back. I mean, and he decided, okay, if he was going to do this, he was going to talk about the, I mean, a big aspect of his psychology, is, as you know, and I'm sure some of your, a lot of your viewers know, is that is that he was all about the growth of the soul by growing down, basically, you know, like paying attention to the symptom, not trying to cure yourself. He was, he was opposed to the way most current therapy happens. He didn't he didn't disdain it completely. He was a therapist himself for many years, never my therapist, but very helpful to me. We can talk about that in a minute in terms of my son. But um but he he uh so you know it was it was pathology that interested him. It was it was mythology and how we we have all these different gods that inhabit us and and uh and we have to get to know them and we have to get to know the darker parts of ourselves. But he Looked at it differently, I would say, than Jung, uh, who was who he knew in, in Switzerland, and I write about that quite a bit in Volume One. Um, that that uh, you know, Jung was all about individuation, the self, from you know, learning more about who we are by delving into the unconscious, of course. But but James took it to a more to I guess you'd say, well, Jung's was analytical psychology, and Hillman's is called archetypal psychology because he. It was those archetypes that came to, to really um, to the forefront with what he was was writing about. He wrote twenty books, translated into twenty one languages. I mean, you know, a tremendous scholar of of, uh, of all kinds of things. You know, everything from and, and an emphasis later in his life on uh, what he called anima mundi or soul in the world. That uh, you know, we had to we had to. Not just do finding out. It was more important than than finding out. Oh, how our father or our mother affected us. Whatever it was, taking that if we if we delved into those things and and then using our knowledge of ourselves to make a difference in the world. You know, to go out there and and, and not just appreciate first of all the the aesthetic nature to notice what was happening around us and then you know to become activists in a sense, and which he was too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and very concerned with um, very mundane things and how they they affect us, uh, how they how they affect our soul. Like I remember in one workshop, maybe at the the Rose Center, um, he got into a whole discussion with someone in the audience about this issue of like, you know, what about my parents and their effect on me? He said, forget about your parents. What about the strawberry at the grocery store that's tasteless and and ice yeah. cold so it numbs the taste buds like what about the strawberries man <laughs> he's like so emphatic and so to hear that you met him because of uh an organic vegetable <laughs> grocer it was just perfect yeah. it's like he's walking the walk you know he's yeah. looking for the the fruit with flavor exactly yeah and uh so i mean of course it was very difficult he died in 2011 in october the end of october and uh and then I had always thought I would just write one big book or that would be it. But there was so much that we were not able to, that we talked about, but the, it was just too much to contain in one volume. So 
we'd agreed before he passed that I would write a second volume. And then as time went by and I worked on that, um, it became clear that I couldn't contain everything I wanted to say about him and his incredible, the incredible breadth of his psychology and his vision in that. So uh, both volumes two and three are coming out this year, which I've been working on, you know, off and on for 20 years now, almost. And um, without him around, I mean, it was a whole another challenge because I didn't have him to bounce ideas off of or read the chapters and tell me what he thought. And, you know, I, but I was going to say earlier that he was, when he was, when he was alive, he was not, he, he, he was ready to talk about the tough parts of his life. You know, he, he, he had, uh, for example, he was kicked out as he became director of studies at the Jung Institute in Zurich, the first one ever that Jung back basically appointed him to. Uh, before Jung died in 1961. And um, so he was really running the show there um, and, and creating, getting ready to create archetypal psychology with Pat Berry and Rafael Lopez Pedraza and, and others. But um, he had an affair with a patient and uh, ended up being um, savagely attacked for that by, among others, C.A. Meyer, who was sort of Jung's right-hand man um, for many, many years and was a therapist and was himself having had had an affair with Hillman's wife, Kate. So here's this hypocritical guy, you know, going after Hillman to get rid of him to co and covering up his own um, situation in life. So, it, but it was that, it was being dismissed as director of studies in, in late 69, I think, or 1970, that really opened the door for him. He stayed on in Zurich and uh, eventually got married to Pat Barry, who was a student th there uh, at the time at the Young Institute, and his, became a tremendous working colleague as well as his wife. And uh, so they they began to formulate the Warburg Institute in London, what became known as archetypal psychology, um, incorporating again mythology and and uh, the aesthetic, and and um, taking trying to, looking to take psychology in a whole new direction. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, how that came about? Because, uh, you know, people might have the image of uh, a bunch of intellectuals uh, sitting around a, a conference table, um, sharing papers and things. But the stories that I've heard, it's more like um, these dinners that would get really out of hand, like around the second bottle of wine and they start throwing <laughs> out ideas. And yeah, can you give us a kind of a taste of uh, what he recollected about those times. Yeah, well, I mean, it were amazing times, and and there was a group of students that, young, mostly young guys, but also some women who had gathered in Zurich to attend the Young Institute, that just sort of coming out of the whole hippie culture, you know, just roaming around and discovering Jung and wanting to, to, uh, and eventually many of them became psychologists themselves or psychiatrists, and so they would have these nights called it was called Spring House, where they'd all gather in this uh, around this big, you know this table and all these chairs and they would yeah they would drink wine and rafael lopez pedraza was this wild cuban uh brilliant brilliant man in his own right um very close friend of hillman's in those days and they would dive into really esoteric subjects you know like like uh, uh don camillo's memory theater from the you know the the renaissance era and, and the, the the great italian um, astrologer scholar ficino and going all the way back to the Greeks and and um, 
so they they were using finding these esoteric texts and and the Picatrix was another one and they would analyze them um, and and have these come to these you know conclusions all these years later like reviving this amazing tradition that that once you know had, had existed and flourished in a much earlier century so um, that was how archetypal psychology really came to be and then he took over uh, spring publications. Uh, which which had been started by Jane Pratt with Jung some some time before, and attending these annual gatherings at, at what's called Eranos, um, and it was this this pretty magical place actually in southern Italy, uh, around Lake uh, around this beautiful lake, where these sort of underground scholars would gather, invited from various disciplines. Uh, there was Gershom Scholem. There was um, Adolf Portman, a biologist, Henry Corban, an incredible scholar of, of Islam and, and mysticism. And so Hillman, they were kind of, Hillman was younger and he was invited to be the psychologist um, presenting. Jung had started this in the 1930s. And uh, so, he, you know, he was carrying on this tradition and it was really quite a place. I mean, I went to, the, one of the big parts of the biography is, is uh, letters that I was able to gather from all these different amazing people that James had known and inter I'd interviewed and they saved their letters and they they allowed you know me to photocopy them and so there was a whole trove of these at Aranos and I went there and uh, God, I had this strange experience I'm one among many but um, I spent the night I think it was the room where Jung once stayed and where Hillman had stayed when he was uh, a guest there speaker and uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was, I couldn't, I was totally not in another world really, but um, I was, I had tremendous dizzy spells. I could not get out of bed. I couldn't make it across the room. This had never happened to me before in my life, but it was really disorienting and I finally overcame it, but it was like something in that place, you know, the spirit of that place was like really powerful and, and uh, as well as remarkably beautiful. Hmm. Uh, when you're kind of kept in your bed, uh, any strange dreams or, or visions while you were there? Any? I was trying to remember the other day. Um, not that not that immediately came to mind. I didn't like see spectral people or anything, but but um, I have had those. I mean, I've had amazing dreams about about James um, through the years, and uh, very very powerful and. He opened my life up in, in just remarkable ways, which we can talk about along this this journey. I mean, I remember at the very beginning of it, he said, welcome, traveler, because he knew that there was no way I was going to be able to write a book about him without exploring <laughs> some really uh, deep and sometimes dark parts of my own psyche. Mm -hmm. And so that is indeed what happened. Wow, amazing. I'm interested to know uh, about the process. Like when he was alive, how do you begin writing a biography of someone like him? Like, do you have sessions where you sit down and you go, okay, let's talk about the early years. What are the, so how do you open up the conversation or like, what are the significant memories or do you go uh, chronologically? How did the process work? Well, at first we did go chronologically because his the ancestors were very important to him. Their, their pictures were on his the room that I stayed in when I went to Thompson and interviewed him. 
uh, all the ancestors going back like, I don't know, four or five generations were on the walls. And it, and they their presences were very real to him, guiding ghosts, you know, and and um, and so we talked a lot about that. And I did a long chapter about his ancestral history on both sides. His grandfather on one side was a very famous reform rabbi, Joseph Krauskopf, and then uh, on the other side, you know, was was the the hotel world that he grew up in in Atlantic City. He really wanted to get into Atlantic City too, and what that was like, because it was it combined sort of the extroverted world of that place of the 1920s with the very introverted world that existed in the winters when he would just, you know, walk his dog alone along the beach. And and so there were both of these, and of course he said the characters he met, you know, were just tremendous fuel for for the psyche, you know, for the for a psychological mind. And um, so he, from the very beginning, you know, wanted to talk about his his soul's code in that sense. And then we did take it chronologically. We, we traveled together. We went to uh, we went to Ireland, uh, where he'd gone to Dublin in Dublin. He attended Trinity College, and gotten to know J.P. Dunleavy, the novelist, became his best friend. Uh, he wanted to be a novelist himself in the beginning. Um, before he went there, he he was uh, in the Navy, and. It was the end of World War II, and because his eyesight was poor, he wasn't allowed to actually, you know, he didn't, wasn't in combat, but he became the, uh, it was this first therapeutic experience because he was taking care of soldiers who had come back, Navy men, uh, who suffered from blindness or deafness. And he had just amazing, you know, experiences with these with these people. Um, then got tuberculosis uh, not too long after that had to be you know in the sanitarium for a while went to trinity college um had met this beautiful uh young woman uh, kate kempe from sweden when he was lived in paris during the era of the existentialists in the late 40s before he went to dublin and uh started a literary magazine in dublin um and then ended up living traveling in africa and then living in Kashmir for about two years i think with kate uh before they got married and um, ending up going to the Jung Institute really because he was having a breakdown. I mean, he had, he got, he, he, at his wedding, actually, he was having this really, you know, pretty rough breakdown. He, he, he had a vision. Well, here's what happened. He met this, this uh, uh, guru, I guess you'd say, named Gopi Krishna mm -hmm. uh, and, when he was in Kashmir and um, who told him, go to the mountain. You know, go go into Tibet. You know, you'll have this. Um, that's where the that's where the vision will come to you. The, the great picture of of life is going to come to you. So he got up there on the mountaintop and waiting for the for the, the the incredible dream to happen. And the dream was his mother and his grandmother lying in bunk beds. And I mean, this sent him down the mountain. I mean, he even sent him actually into analysis <laughs> at, the, at the Jung Institute. I mean, it was such a uh a shock to his his psyche i guess and um so he then not not the grand vision he expected not the grand vision he expected at all but a life-changing event for him you know um and he did go through what's uh, what's called the kundalini experience where uh which this kopi gobi krishna had talked to him about and eventually did a book called kundalini about you know the energy coming up through your through your spinal column and and uh, shaking you to your core. I mean, it's, it's a whole story, but 
Um, yeah, well, for just to interject, um, for people listening who don't know, Hillman wrote a commentary on Gopi Krishna's Kundalini book, exactly. uh, which is fascinating. Yeah, yes, he did. That was one of his early books, I think 1967. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... Um, so he comes down from the mountain and uh, and he's getting married, which would cause any um, puer to have a breakdown, I would think, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Commitment. <laughs> Yeah. one woman <laughs> right i mean he was he was definitely you know he, he wrote a lot about puer and senex you know the the and it felt like all his life he was he was I, I, a puer you know that that uh always the you know the youthful idealist uh, on the one hand but needing the senex discipline on the other but he said he thought a lot of his books were probably a justification of his puer behavior <laughs> when he was first writing them yeah. Well, I mean, even the way he wrote, like, so you have uh, a capacity to write these long books uh, focused around one subject, uh, but he wrote kind of small pieces that were collected into a, a number of, of works, of course, but uh, they were kind of like he's jumping around from topic to topic. Like he's very yeah. much the puer and his uh, his writing style reflected, I think, the way his mind worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he covered everything and, and he researched everything, you know, and Oxford and you know very scholarly work on on uh, betrayal. He wrote an amazing essay on betrayal in the mid 1960s. His first um, first book, which was his thesis uh, at the University of Zurich, was called Emotion. And uh, he said, you know, he wrote it because he was having trouble getting to his own, you know, emotions, and he and he was exploring that in a in a very archetypal and, and intellectual way. So um, <clears throat> yeah, he wrote about everything. I mean, he he just later. Uh, I write about in volume two when he was, lived in Dallas. He left Zurich after 25 years and moved to Dallas, Texas, of all places, and connected there with the university first as a as a, a professor, and then um, starting the, the the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture. And there, you know, he wrote at at length and talked gave lectures about the the soul of architecture, city and soul. What could we wrote about ceilings? Wrote about you know things that that we could do to to make city life more uh, appealing aesthetically, and that was when he also sort of dove into this idea of anima mundi, soul in the world, and and uh, how we needed to notice our environment and become you know connected to it, and and so that's uh, he he followed this fascinating thread his, his entire life. Mm-hmm. Well, going back to that question, what do you do on the sinking ship? You know, when the when the ship's going down, what do you do? Um, and you know, I think he spoke about that in terms of uh like doing um psychotherapy, like kind of ego-centered individualist psychology in these uh windowless clinical rooms, you know, meanwhile the ship is going down. Right. And uh so did he have another answer for that? Like, you know, what do we do when the ship is going down? Um, we we get out of the room and what, see if we can bail some water while it's going down? Or or do we do we go down with the band playing us out or you know? Well you dive in, I think it's that you you dive into um whatever aspect of the culture, you know, is 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 yours. I mean, he he became he did a lot of the outdoor work. He was a gardener. He, he planted trees around his, his place in Connecticut and, and, um, explored the environment, um, at 
you know, spoke about it a lot at seminars and, and people getting out there and getting involved. And, you know, so I, I think he saw it as, as something that was vital for people to do in whatever way they were moved to do it. And, uh, but, but beyond, you know, getting stuck in themselves and, and always, you know, looking for something, connecting to people to, with real relationships. And, and, and he was very much um, someone who believed in community uh, that we needed to come together to get things done. And, and so that's why he was really pretty fascinated with how I lived because I've lived in a communal setting for much of my life. And, uh, <clears throat> and he was really, really, um, you know, fascinated by that and, and, uh, and, and very much in a, 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 a pushing for, for those kinds of involvements for people. Mm. Yeah. Get out and tend, tend to the soul of the world. Yeah. Uh, something like that in whatever capacity that is. And he wasn't snobbish about the way that you would do that either. Right. Like, um, like the, the organic grocer was yeah. probably doing exactly what he was put here to do. You know? Exactly. Yeah. 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 I, w- I would say that that's, that's certainly true. And he also felt like, you know, we had to come to terms with, um, he was always, going to the core of subjects like even about war you know his final book which i write about in volume three was a terrible love of war which writing that for him was that's when i was first getting to know him and was excruciating i mean he he had he fell down you know hit his head i mean he was like you know really suffering um uh the agonies of the battlefield and um and writing about how we could not be rid of war, he toured the Civil War battlefields. He walked all over them with his old friend of his from uh, Ireland, Kenny Donnie, to feel what it took, you know, to feel the, wow, this this is the soil on which thousands of American men fought each other and died for the sake of the Union. What did that mean, you know? He explored that. He explored the meaning of war to soldiers and camaraderie that exists and he wasn't extolling war but he was saying we've got to understand the in a sense that there is also beauty in it to people and people are driven to do it so why is that we can't just get rid of it we can't say oh let's just have peace i mean he had a big debate with deepak chopra once about this you know it was very much on the other feeling we, we you know we can get to peace in our time by meditating which you know that helps but um so um he was taking those kinds of subjects and really forcing an examination they weren't always popular either i mean a lot of people didn't want to hear about that yeah i i didn't know that he was into boxing which uh helps me feel more of an affinity with him because i love (laughs) uh martial arts and boxing um yeah uh it totally makes sense though because he was such an intellectual pugilist like I think he said once that uh, he could only write when he's angry. Yeah, and like and like he used to quote I think it was Heraclitus that said like hate is the father of all things or, or something like that. Like strife is what begins creation, mm-hmm. um, and so he really had that Mars aspect. Uh, Mars so, is hugely important to him. Yes. Yeah, the, yeah, I think he said sometimes that he was a he was a child of Mars. Yeah, he did. He did, and he, he talked about that in, in lectures, and and uh, and and didn't <laughs> I remember one lecture I went to back uh, way back 2003 or something, and 
and the very new age kind of woman was up there talking about, oh, you know, the, how spiritual a man he was, and we must uh, we must bring our bodies to this event. And and um, James's wife Margot says, aren't they already here? <laughs> and then he got up there in front of this audience that had been, you know, kind of lulled by this this beautiful talk, and he said, I feel oppressed. <laughs> <laughs> And launched into you know what he had to talk about. So uh, yeah, he was he was uh, and he you know when he was a teacher in his earlier years, I mean students were often kind of terrified of him because he he just did not settle for fools. You know, tolerate fools gladly, as as the phrase goes. He he would let you have it if you said something stupid. He mellowed as he got older, and part of that mellowing, you know, I think he had a a, a remarkable experience spending a number of years in the so-called men's movement. And yeah, I, I was going to say, I've, I've reflected on this with other people who are around that movement, and I think it did kind of temper him in a, in a way because he was in an environment that uh, he wasn't really accustomed to. Like, it was not so uh, intellectual. It was more kind of body and feeling oriented. Um yeah, and I could hear it in his lectures at those uh, Minnesota men's conferences. You can hear mm. the more humility and kind of self-deprecation and maybe trying to actually win the audience of men over. You know, I I can pick up on that because I've listened to so many hours of him in, in different kind of modes. Um, but yeah, please say more about that and uh, if he had any reflections on that. Oh yeah, he really wanted that to. He really wanted to talk about that and the importance of it in his life and for the culture in general. Because the, the, the he was one of the teachers. It was called the what he was part of was called the Mytho Poetic Men's Movement, and um, they used eventually he Robert Bly, the poet, and Michael Mead, storyteller, who emphasized fairy tales with these groups of gatherings of men in the woods of Mendocino and Minnesota and elsewhere. And James was the the intellectual, you know, he he talked about ideas and he also talked about, you know, raw subjects. I mean, uh, it was all very uh, and it was it was often characterized by the big media as, oh, this is just a group of guys, you know, beating drums and going off to talk about their wives in some kind of disparaging way in the woods. Right. For a week, which it was 100 men often coming together, you know, but it was so far from that. It was really deep talk getting to all kinds of subjects that, you know, you were afraid to talk about using, using fairy tales and mythology to, you know, find yourself in a particular story that, you know, you'd never heard before, and, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and making masks together. And, and um, well, there was one that they did where um, you had to, one of the, one of the men would be blindfolded and you would have to lead him you know, into the woods or wherever you were going. And, and uh, of course, for James, it, it, he wept, you know, I mean, he, he'd been reminded him of his days in the Navy when he had been taking care of these blind soldiers. And, hmm. and, um, you know, and his son came and, and, and there was, there was, um, it was not an easy thing for them. Um, his son, I've interviewed at some length, but it wasn't easy for him growing up being this, the son of this, this great thinker. And who was often distant in that sense, but boy, they they really went through it, you know, at, at the men's gathering. And and uh, and Lawrence Hillman became a, an archetypal astrologer, um, came to appreciate, you know, that he, he said, as he said, grew up marinated in in, uh, in archetypal 
stuff that, you know, led him to what he was going to do in life. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many stories. Um, and, and James would do things like, um, at first he had a hard time um, just, you know, some of the men wonder, what's this guy doing here, this egghead, you know, intellectual philosopher, you know. And, but they all came to so appreciate who he, who he is, who he was. And, um, you know, he, he would do things like, uh, when, when they challenged him at one of these very early events uh, by sending this guy into the room when James was talking completely naked. And the guy comes in and just sits down in a chair. So what did Hillman do? He just looked over there and he said, uh, and everybody's kind of snickering and everything. He says, uh, would you stand up, please? <laughs> so, you know, he just would throw the challenge back and, yeah. and take it in and, uh, um, you know, came to just cherish these these gatherings. And um, I've been to one. I went to one in Mendocino, uh, which I found very, very powerful later. You know, I mean, I wasn't there one that he was he was at because I didn't know anything about it in those years. But it, and uh, it truly is. Uh, um, quite a thing to go through, and there was one in 1991 where 50 black men and 50 white men all came together in the woods of West Virginia. It's called Buffalo Gap, and wow, they got into some stuff. Some of them were from the Deep South, had very racist backgrounds. Um, James Hillman gave a talk called Notes on White Supremacy. At that meeting, a man named Maladoma Somay, who was uh, from West Africa, for the first time told his story. And um, it was an incredible story. I'm just going to quickly summarize it. He wrote a book called of Water and the Spirit later about it. But he, he spoke of when he was a boy, he grew up in Burkina Faso in West Africa and was taken from his village when he was like four years old and raised by the Jesuits. He forgot his native language, um, you know, knew, I guess, didn't, knew the new, uh, obviously English or French, I think it was the, the French from the Jesuits. And then he escaped when he was in, in his early 20s and made it his way back to his village, hundreds of miles away, was not accepted because, you know, he, he didn't even know anything you know, about the language or uh, it was a Dagara tribe actually. So he went through the initiation that usually young men go through or boys go through when they're like 13, 14, when he was 21 and and um, and became someone that his grandfather who had foreseen, which was he who makes friends with the stranger. And he ended up going to the Sorbonne where he's educated, Boston University, and becoming a, a healer, a, a shaman, uh, who was bringing that culture in a very profound way to the West. Mm-hmm. Well, look, Dick, obviously you're a natural storyteller because I really don't have to do much in terms of uh, segue, <laughs> but I would like to talk about um, uh, both how Maladoma and Hillman played a part in your relationship with your son, Franklin, who uh, I guess was diagnosed with schizophrenia around the time he was 17. And yeah. so where would that put us? Is that late 90s, early 2000s? That was like the late 90s, 1996, somewhere in there. Okay. And, um, so you had already met Hillman and were friends with him? And uh... I had, no, I had not met him yet. Um, okay. I had met him two years later. And then um, there was one time when I was um, up visiting him. This was, I think, around the time I started the biography, perhaps. Um, when he 
James picked up on the fact that I was troubled, and he said, "You know, you're, something's off, something's wrong. What is it? And, and uh, is it is it your son?" And I said, "Yeah, it was that I was really having a hard time because I couldn't handle the what's called the delusions. You know, he would just oh, I'm go out out there, right? And so oh, I, I I built this house over here. I did this, and and um, at the same time, he was remarkably psychic. I mean, he could." you know, read my thoughts. He was a, he was sort of shamanic in his own way, which I didn't really know anything about that yet. But, um, and what James Hillman told me that day, I'll never, I never forgot. Uh, it was, it was that, you know, he said, yeah, you can just go on like that. And, and, you know, you're the father, you know, better, but, but maybe you could just go with it, you know, open yourself to following him wherever he's going. Talk about, what you're doing that day. And even if he dismisses it and makes up some story about it, um, you still, you know, it's a conversation that you're having. And, and he said more than that. I mean, he said it much more profoundly than I'm saying it here. But what I know that once I, I did that, tried that, it completely changed the relationship with Frank. Um, and, and suddenly we could, you know, we could have fun with this stuff. Some of it, you know, we could, we could play with it. We could be in a restaurant, you know, you like these Asian restaurants and, I remember one time he he was he started to talk to the waiter and in, in made up made up Chinese <laughs> and uh, and the waiter didn't know what to do and he was kind of wandering around <laughs> and and, uh, and then Frank, he came back by the table and Franklin pointed at me and he said oh he said don't worry he said um, well, we're speaking Mandarin but he only understands uh, Cantonese <laughs> in other words I wouldn't <laughs> get the conversation right so uh, and we just laughed you know and we, we so we could. We could have fun with those kinds of things. And um, that was the beginning of uh, what later became a, a uh, what can I call it? I guess a shamanic quest. I mean, I, mm -hmm. after James Hillman died in 2011, I, a year later, I was very desperate in seeking an, uh, at least an adjunct to conventional psychiatric medication. Um, which was really debilitating in a lot of ways and put tremendous weight gain on people who took it. And, um, you know, I just didn't know what to do. And and um, in the course of that, my my wife suggested, well, why don't you contact Maladoma Somme? Now, I had interviewed him, and James Hillman had talked to him about him with me uh, when he was alive, that he felt it was very important that I include Maladoma in the biography. So I right. Okay. Yeah. Phone. So you interviewed Maladoma about the Hillman biography yeah. and about their time in the men's movement together. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So because um, they'd gotten to know each other well, and Maladoma had great respect for James, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I contacted him and came to to California to do a, a divination with him, and that was the beginning of a an amazing um, process that I chronicled later in a book called My Mysterious Son, A Life-Changing Passage Between Schizophrenia and Shamanism. Hmm. Well, <clears throat> one of the um, kind of most common criticisms I hear about Hillman is that, uh, yeah, he's full of like wonderful ideas, but they're not very practical. They're, they're like hard to apply to, uh, to psychotherapy. And, you know, people say, well, he wasn't really practicing psychotherapy for the second half of his life. He'd given it up. And as he said, he was doing a therapy of ideas. Uh, um, and I disagree because I think his ideas are all about 
your your orientation, your attitude, your approach to uh, you know anyone with any kind of problems. And so one of the guiding principles is to follow the symptom. Yep. Uh, another guiding principle is, is stick with the image. So don't get yep. into analyzing or interpreting whatever comes up in a dream or a fantasy, uh, but stay with it. And maybe it has something to tell you. So it's very much like a, um, I don't know how you characterize it, but it's, it's a go with the flow kind of an attitude. And, uh, so I'm I'm really fascinated by his practical advice to you as a friend in how to deal with your son who is coming up with all these like fantastic scenarios and is kind of like in his own fantasy world. Yeah. Um and so it sounds like it was like really good advice and counter to what you had been doing already or what you'd been told to do. Absolutely. Really going with what was presenting with, with Franklin, if you want to call them symptoms of his schizophrenia, which I, I have a hard time with those diagnoses, but. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it was just real basic, you know, uh, basic advice. And, and, uh, and, and he, I'll, I'll just, I'll read you one just paragraph from what he, what he said, what he said to me, because it was really quite amazing. Um, yeah. Well, he says, you probably have to reconstellate the relationship, not in terms of where you're trying to help him and not trying to get anywhere with him. Simply, you know where I was today? I went to Connecticut. You let go of his being a, quote, sick man. Then you may find he tells you things that he doesn't talk about otherwise. You don't know what's going to come out, but it's almost as if you've abandoned being the responsible father because you can't move it. Okay, so that's over with. Make him feel that you really want to see him and tell him things. You say, this guy drove by and I thought, I wish Frank had seen that car. What did you think of that kind of car? He might go into a delusion about the car, but it doesn't matter. You've approached him differently from the therapeutic. So, I mean, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? Um, so not not treating him as a sick person, as someone with a problem, and obviously, then at that point, you're the person who doesn't have the problem, who's trying to help him, and how that creates a certain dynamic. And like one of the quotes I, I remembered uh, from your account is he said, um, res respect resistance. Yes. Right? Right. So if you, you approach him in a certain way, and Franklin is uh, what throwing up all kinds of resistance, maybe even getting angry with you, respect that. Now, yeah. what did that mean to you in not just how you understood it, but how it showed up in the relationship. Well, as I said, I, I think it really changed the dynamic, you know, because I accepted that there were parts of, I just accepted him, who he was. And I also, at the same time, began to really deeply appreciate the qualities he had, what he had to teach me about life. Not just what the father can impart to the son, but what is the son really trying to tell me? And I mean, he turns out to, you know, he's a remarkable artist. When he was younger, he was an incredible writer. And then he began to write sort of in other languages and write hieroglyphics and, you know, all these kinds of things that I really had a hard time relating to. But, but I also came to just appreciate his vision and how he was connected to other worlds in ways that, you know, were mysterious to me, but I believed were real, you know, they were certainly real to him. Mm -hmm. And they weren't 
they weren't like um, delusions that were meaningless. Uh, occasionally, you know, he would have conversations. I'd overhear conversations he was having with an invisible entity. And, you know, I, I mean, this is often dismissed, I think, in with so-called schizophrenics as, as uh, oh, you know, this, they're just, they're hearing voices. Well, it wasn't quite like that. You know, he was, he was really having conversations that, that, uh, you know, were to him certainly meaningful and, and able to um, start to move through the world in, in a different way, especially once, you know, he, he was appreciated, he was recognized, he was respected, his resistance to being a regular person was respected hmm. let's put it that way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like asserting his uniqueness and eccentricity which yeah. uh you know hillman was all about is like allowing for the eccentric right exactly hillman loved and hillman had so many friends like that by the way i mean just <laughs> odd people you know that, that, that he was attracted to and worked with and well, they're, they're the most interesting people yeah exactly and, and uh <laughs> he, he he just he loved the eccentric and, and uh, he was eccentric himself you know in certain ways and so why he would have reaction to showing up at uh, uh, i don't know um some kind of retreat center maybe the omega institute or something and the person introducing him doing a, a kind of a centering exercise right and <laughs> and then he gets up there and of course the puer in him is just going to want to decenter everything and throw it off yeah. kilter right yeah yeah exactly i mean yeah, one time we sat down. Um, there was a period of the biography where you asked me earlier, uh, did we follow a chronological path? And and in some ways we did. But then, and volume three becomes much more like this. We began to just, he, he, I went to see him one day. He said, let's just talk about themes. And, and then he gave me actually a homework assignment, <laughs> which was, he asked me to list what I found, the eight essential themes of his work. Hmm. Which I did, and I recently dug it out. And I'm, I'm not going to read all these, you know, elaborate on these. But you know, the first was uh, uh, an emphasis on soul rather than ego and self. That includes embracing its pathologies rather than trying to quote cure them. Again, as you said, the importance of images in coming to what he called a poetic basis of life in words and our dreams and fantasies in seeing through to a deeper understanding. Images as living realities through the realms of literature, art, myth, and alchemy. And following from that, an emphasis on the aesthetic and the sense of beauty, noticing what's around us. And then connecting classical mythology with contemporary psychology. Then engaging Jung and reworking his psychology. The importance of Anima Mundi, as I mentioned, the the, uh, soul in the world, and the the shadow of... that exists in therapy itself. Mm-hmm. It's emphasis on the subjective and the scientific, and it's what he called redemptive uh, Christianism, and its institutionalization as a as a profession where it loses its roots in cultural criticism. So mm-hmm. I presented that to him, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but he was not displeased. <laughs> so, right. Something like, "Wow, well, sounds pretty good." Yeah, sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, yeah, something in there too. Maybe this has this could be fit under the anima mundi, but toward the end of his life, I really feel like he was really strongly promoting uh, a civic responsibility, he like was. we were talking about before that in, that engagement with your local community, like not trying to save the world, but just do your part 
where you're at, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's what he did himself. He, he was got first when I first met him, he was involved in a fight to stop this sewer new kind of the sewer development in his small town, and I put him in touch with a friend of mine from the EPA and and things like that. So, yeah, and and neighbors that would wanted to bring down trees that he thought were beautiful or something, you know, he he would take this up and take them on, and uh, and and fight it. So, yeah, exactly. It was like you kind of engage where you are notice and appreciate where you are and go from there. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks. Thanks.